I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We are broadcasting live from West Palm Beach at the International Leadership Association Conference. I am delighted to be talking to Cheryl Tan and Lisa DeFrank Cole. Our topic is going to be awareness of women in leadership and how their journeys are different than men, how they have different career paths, and in some ways experience leadership development differently. Let's start with why is it important to look at women in leadership? Well, if we start just by looking at statistics, we know that women make up 50% of the American population. They make up 50% of the workforce, and they are earning the majority of degrees at every level in higher education, from the baccalaureate to doctorates. Yet men continue to outnumber women in nearly every sector of leadership. Mm -hmm. So statistics tells us that there are fewer women senior leaders who hold the S&P 500 CEO chief executive officer position, Mm so 5.2 percent. And they only make up, you know, a little more than 19 percent of the U.S. Congress. So in the most powerful leadership positions that there are, women are grossly underrepresented, although they represent the majority of our pop or at least half of our population in the workforce. And according to a McKinsey study that just came out, Women in the Workplace 2018, it looks like um, what they say, looking back over the last four years, the agonizingly slow improvement in women's representation in senior management becomes apparent. So it's not getting markedly better. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of research to support that. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? One of the things we do is we educate. We mm-hmm. bring this to this awareness to the mm-hmm. individuals. A lot of that, that particular instance is what led us to writing and editing our book, Women's okay. Leadership Journeys. So tell me about the book. What was the goal? You talked about the goal. Give us more about the book. Sure. This idea began, it came out of an annual conference that the Kravis mm-hmm. Leadership Institute at Claremont McKenna College, where I'm from, typically hosts. And um, the idea came from that particular conference. And so since I had been working very closely with Lisa DeFrank Cole on numerous other projects, I asked mm-hmm. her to help co-edit this particular book. And this has become part of the Rutledge Leadership Research and Practice series edited by Georgia Sorensen and Ron Reggio. And so it became important for us to include stories, um, research, um, new perspectives on women mm-hmm. in leadership so that it would give us an idea or trajectory of Mm -hmm. the leadership journeys that women take. Lisa could tell you a little bit more about about the book as well. Sure. And that I I think if we look back in uh, our history that we like to tell stories, Mm -hmm. we learn Mm -hmm. from stories much more so than than statistics. Mm -hmm. So part, I think, of our book that's so interesting is that we're incorporating a more feminist perspective and asking women to tell their stories. Okay. So in addition, I think we wanted to expand the definition of leadership um, to Mm -hmm. those people who don't hold positions. Um, Oftentimes women demonstrate or manifest leadership, but Mm -hmm. they aren't position holders and they're not getting paid for the work that they do, Mm -hmm. whether that's in the home or in the community or volunteerism. Mm -hmm. So how can we recognize that influence without authority that women often bring Mm -hmm. 
In addition, I think we wanted to um, dispel perhaps some of the hyper-masculinity for men that it's okay to have work-life balance where not only are we seeing maybe more women entering the work field, but, but, but more men being comfortable staying home with the kids. Mm-hmm. How can we expand the opportunities for men at the same time as expanding opportunities for women? And we think that this book kind of gives some examples of, mm-hmm. of people doing some of these things and perhaps some novel perspectives about how to look ahead and do it better. So can you give an example of one of the novel perspectives? Sure. Well, one of them was authored by Barbara Kellerman. Oh, okay. Um, And she looks at the influence of biology and leadership. And it's actually called leadership and lactation, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting and novel approach to looking at leadership and looking at the reasons and how biology is linked to the reasons why women um, may or may not take on those leadership roles. And she talks about it with regards to some of our primate cousins. And maybe Lisa could talk about it because she likes, yeah, I know this sure. is something she's been really interested yeah, yeah. in. I was just amazed when yeah. I started talking to Barbara <laughs> Kellerman about this. But so Barbara's this professor at Harvard and she's written numerous books and articles. And so she looked at the bonobo monkeys and she looking, she's looking at primates and say in some of these species, the child a monkey doesn't leave its mother monkey for up to two years. And what can we learn from that and how, if that is the case with humans, if it is the case, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. can we draw some, some similarities there between what is happening with primates to humans? Mm-hmm. What can we do in our workforces to um, have policies in place that enable a mother to stay close to her child if that is mm-hmm. something that is necessary and needed? For healthy development of the yes, child, exactly. support of a healthy community, yes, mm-hmm. not, and not just for that independent family unit. Exactly. It's a bigger social fabric issue. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Right. So that's one of the novel perspectives. That competition is something interesting, too. Yeah, the differences between men and women in competition. Um, this is written by one of my colleagues at Claremont McKenna College, Jeffrey Flory. He's an economist. Mm. Um, and he looks at competition. And he looks at the differences in competition among men and women, and there are differences. Mm-hmm. But what he finds is that as we age, um, the level of competition between men and women tend to dissipate a little bit more. Hmm. Women are more able to be more competitive. And so it's interesting to see why that is. And so some of his research talks about that. You know, it, a lot of it he equates to also some of the um, some other tribal regions in how they look at gender roles or how they look at competition. And so there's a lot of different factors that play into it. But it's a, it's a new perspective, looking at it from an economic point of view, okay. which is, is different. You know, years ago, I had some questions about how humans function. So I looked at how did people work in tribes in Australia and mm-hmm. Africa, early, early, not current, to figure out, like, what are we doing that's constructed by our current society that may be completely contrary to what humans are wired to do. And some of the gender roles that we have now aren't aligned with what was traditionally done in a tribal environment. Mm-hmm. I realize we don't live in tribes, but how are we wired and what, what are we working against our nature mm-hmm. to do in this current construct? Well, something to consider as we think about gender roles. Gender is socially constructed. Oh, that's yeah. That's so. It's not a biologically constructed idea or construct. So, because it's socially constructed, it's defined by how the culture, mm-hmm. how society mm-hmm. determines what roles are appropriate. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, it equates to some 
biology in terms mm-hmm. of physical mm-hmm. strength or um, in terms of who's lactating, yeah. for example. <laughs> but in that, those are some of how we divide some of the roles, but not necessarily all roles fit the biology. Mm-hmm. And we've constructed them in certain ways that women are more communal um, mm-hmm. because they have to take mm-hmm. care and be nurturing, whereas men are more agentic. And so they are the breadwinners. They are more aggressive or more mm-hmm. assertive and more dominant. And so we've constructed that within, at least within the U.S. culture um, and within our division of gender roles here. And yet when, when I think of a few people that, who are highly educated, um, successful and mothers, if you got near their children to do them harm, they would be far more agentic than most men. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's not that we don't have it in us. It's that we don't express it in our current cultural roles. And sometimes when we do express something that's counterintuitive to what's traditional, we get backlash as women. Oh, yeah. And so (laughs) that's sometimes a challenge, especially women leaders face, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because it's not the prototypical picture of a leader Mm -hmm. that people have in their mind, which Mm -hmm. might be this top-down leader telling you exactly what, it, mm-hmm. what to do. It's a, this implicit leadership idea that we might have. And so when we see a woman in that role, we're like, mm, what is that? You know, this is different. You know, it's interesting. I've coached several <laughs> female leaders, and the ones I'm thinking of specifically were sentenced to coaching rather than choosing. And in each case, they were seen as much more aggressive. And so, again, the, their style clashed with what was normal in their culture and they were expected to be different and it's just a fascinating process and also heartbreaking to tell people who are so amazingly successful and effective that they're broken because they behave in a way that's inconsistent now i realize if you're bashing people you need to tone it down so i'm not saying we we tolerate bad behavior but i think in a few of those cases if men had behaved the same way they might have received different feedback. Yeah, they probably would have. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, it sounds so stereotypical to say that, but I'm thinking of two very specific cases who were brilliant women. And the literature bears that out, Maureen. It's definitely there. It's been proven. And my experiences with them have been nothing but positive. And I realize, again, you don't bash your coach often. But to your point, the literature bears it out. Yeah. So let's shift to... What makes a leadership, uh, women's leadership journey different from a men's leadership journey? Well, a lot of their journeys and stories are different. So the journey to leadership or the career paths that women take is not a simple linear path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's typically a lot of twists and turns, stops and starts, uh, a lot of roadmaps towards leadership. So they Mm -hmm. might go this route and then go a different route. And so it's always a little bit different. It could be like um, Alice Eagley and um, Linda Carley in their book, Through the Labyrinth, is like the labyrinth, that Mm -hmm. metaphor Mm -hmm. that they use. Sylvia Hewlett talks about women going on-ramp and off-ramp during their careers Mm -hmm. based Mm -hmm. on different factors that influence a woman's life, basically, Mm -hmm. um, whether it be their different life stages, family responsibilities. Um, their career aspirations, mm-hmm. um, which all influence their career decisions. And those career decisions influence the paths they take and in turn 
influences the leadership opportunities mm-hmm. that are afforded to them. So it, it all connects with one another. And so women have these different journeys that is more complex. And it's important to also take into account the context in which women's leadership journeys occur in. They have to face much more complex decision-making because they have personal and societal expectations that are placed on Mm -hmm, them, mm -hmm. whether it be family responsibilities or what society deems is most appropriate Mm -hmm, for women. mm -hmm. So we see these transitions, we see these different journeys vary from woman to woman. Mm -hmm. So I wonder how are men's journeys changing now? Because I think in the intro you said men are also experiencing, in some cases, similar changes in their experience. I think they are. I think I think the younger generation is coming up into the workforce and they are beginning to want more from life and from work and mm-hmm, to seek out mm-hmm, that work-life mm-hmm. balance. And so I think with that, that often also starts to alter a little bit their leadership journeys in terms of what they might be interested in. There's a great model, the Kaleidoscope Career Model, that talks about career transitions. It's based on these three concepts or three ideas and the different times in your life in which these Mm, um, mm -hmm. constructs are important. So one is authenticity, balance, and challenge. Okay. So usually younger, when you're younger starting your career, you want a little more challenge in your career as you begin to move on during your life stage, um, have families, you want maybe more balance, and then at the end, more authenticity. Mm-hmm. Well, those kind of career transitions change from men to women yeah, and yeah. what their what their values are, are mm-hmm. different. So, but I think men are starting to value more of the work and life. And mm-hmm. so that changes a little bit of their career trajectories and their leadership opportunities as well. The topic of Me Too came up. How do you think that is impacting women in the workplace, women in leadership? I think we can clearly see that after the post-Me Too movement, uh, we're still in it. But more women are running for elected office. Mm-hmm. And I think the most women of color ever are mm-hmm. running for mm-hmm. elected office as we approach the midterm elections. And I think that's a great thing that if women are going to be making our policies that they can actually, um, they will be looking at different elements than men look Mm -hmm. at. Mm -hmm. They're interested in sometimes more home and family issues Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. opposed to money and resources or military. Mm -hmm. So the things that women focus on can sometimes be different than what those issues are that Mm -hmm. men would focus on. You know, it's interesting. I talked to a congresswoman a couple of weeks ago, interviewed her, U.S. Congress, and she is on, I think, the Finance, Ways and Means Committee. So there are also women in those key decision roles in some of the traditionally male spots. And that's so important. We need the women's Mm -hmm. voice in Mm -hmm. and representation Mm -hmm. in those key spots. I think it needs to be an equal representation on all those particular types of committees. Obviously, um, that's challenging when there's not equal representation Mm -hmm. of gender. Yeah. And she's a black woman, so that's even harder. She is really worked incredibly hard to be in those rooms she has had to absolutely yeah absolutely and and created these opportunities Mm -hmm. for herself and made you know allowed herself to be a part of that so i think that's um commendable because we need that voice there as well as we also need the male voice within Mm -hmm. uh policy and topics that might be deemed 
quote unquote more feminine. So you, you know, you talked earlier about having men as allies, that having a greater sense of equality is partially women, but it's also strongly having our male colleagues advocate. Exactly right. And and there is certainly a line of literature and research out there now that's talking about that. If we're talking mm-hmm. about women having fewer leadership positions than men, mm-hmm. we need to look at men as allies. How can they advocate for us to kind mm-hmm. of sponsor us? Mm-hmm. Uh, if we think about mentors and sponsors and the difference between the two, if a sponsor actually has skin in the game, then mm-hmm. then we need some male sponsors to kind of help women um, pull them into some leadership positions and advocate mm-hmm. on their behalf. Otherwise, we can't always depend on other women because they're not holding those positions. Yeah, at Accenture, I was in a women's mentoring program as one of the people getting mentored. And I chose a male male mentor because he was in a position of power. He could help me navigate that in a way that very few women in the firm could. Exactly. And so I think as we think about who do we mentor and who do we look to, looking at, at men as allies is absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think as women build these individuals who will mentor, sponsor, or advocate them, they might mm-hmm. look at to it as a team of individuals, mm-hmm. um, including men and women, mm-hmm. so in different mm-hmm. positions, yeah. so that they are getting that support from mm-hmm. all different avenues. And clearly there are research who talk about, um, I'm thinking of Lynn Shallen's research or Crystal Hoyt's research, where they talk about leader identity and how can we create a leader identity team and mm-hmm. having people mm-hmm. on your team to advocate for you on a personal level, people who love you no matter what. Yeah. And having some people who can help reach and pull you up into mm-hmm. a different position, mm-hmm. uh, people who are at your peer level um, mm-hmm. at your organization. And so having um, a, a team is certainly helpful. It's not just one guru that you mm-hmm. can go to. It's a team. And I also have people who question me. And it's, mm-hmm. it's wonderful to have people who think I'm great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I really need people who will tell me I'm off the mark on something because it stretches my thinking. Mm -hmm. You need that person who will play devil's advocate Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. you and be upfront with you and tell you, okay, wait, what are you really Mm -hmm. thinking? um, (laughs) And is that really what you want to do? You need that. You need that honest feedback. Mm -hmm. And when it's coming from a different person or different people, Mm -hmm. um, having this team is so essential. And so a diversity within the team is as mm-hmm. essential mm-hmm. as that as mm-hmm. well. So diversity of thought, diversity is perspective. And I think to have an effective team, you have to have trust. It takes time mm-hmm. to build mm-hmm. trust. Yeah. I think, you know, if Cheryl and I just look at our own relationship and how we work in writing a book or articles and things together, there's a deep level of trust there. So if Cheryl's telling me something about fixing something mm-hmm. that I'm doing, mm-hmm. I know that it comes from a place of trust. And I would mm-hmm. also say love yeah. <laughs> to kind of make it the best that it could possibly mm-hmm. be. Yeah. I had similar with co-authors mm-hmm. and we went back and forth a lot in some of these cases and we maintained friendship and we produced a much better product. Yes. But there were days it was really exactly. stinking hard. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be like that, right? Peaks <laughs> and valleys. But to your point, expressing that alternate point of view in a way that's clear and crisp and comes from a place of commitment to doing the best possible work we yeah. can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. It's so important. So let's go back to Me Too for a minute. How do you think this is going to play out in our society? Well, I think we can see recent events in the last mm-hmm. year or two, particularly men who have been affected by Me Too losing their jobs and losing mm-hmm. their position. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think we saw that level of um, falling from the throne, so to speak, mm-hmm. In, in, mm-hmm. In, in past decades. 
And we're seeing some of that now in ways that we haven't. And I think that uh, empowers more women to do more. Okay. Sometimes if you see more women doing this, she's like, I could do mm -hmm. that too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I, we think of Reese Witherspoon. Um, we recently heard that she created a production company that is with women in the leadership mm -hmm. roles and mm -hmm. thinking, how can we create more opportunities for women in film that demonstrate women aren't just sex objects, but they also have thinking communicating mm -hmm. parts mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. they talk to other women in roles that are not just about talking about men or relationships. Mm -hmm. They actually talk about substantive things. So I think, you know, there's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of connected pieces. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. I think post Me Too, more women feel more empowered and that's a good thing. They feel more empowered. They're starting to create their own leadership opportunities as mm -hmm. well. They're also bringing this issue to the forefront of people's minds, letting people know that, yes, this is something that is important and is important to our society and mm -hmm. to our culture mm -hmm. in order for us to move forward. Yeah, we can't have parity if we treat one group, whatever that group is, mm -hmm. poorly. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. So do you think that this is going to be a thing that happened and then uh, we swing back to the old behaviors, or do you think this will actually make a difference? You know, I, I hate to sound trite when I say, well, I guess we'll have to wait and see, Maureen. <laughs> but if we look at waves of feminism as an example, mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. think we, we're in the fourth wave of feminism, and we see it's not as if nothing else was going on in between those waves. Right, right. There's clearly a lot going on, but there's mm -hmm. some impetus. There's something that happens that causes women to kind of join together mm -hmm. and and march. If you well, will. think about after the mm -hmm. in the U.S. the presidential yes. election with the hats. Yes, yes, and, and the yes. the anti-Trump rally. Sure, yeah. and and so I think there are events that happen that cause women to stand up and voice their mm -hmm. opinions mm -hmm. a little more uh, vociferously. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are other times when it's not that nothing's going on. But so I think, as you were saying, mm -hmm. what is it right now? Will this help? I think it's helping. Will it fade? Perhaps, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean nothing's going to happen. It's just a kind of an ebb and mm -hmm. flow, and then there will be something else where voices mm -hmm. get louder again. Mm -hmm. I had friends who marched in the rally, the post-election rally, and then I remember we, we were in a leadership program, actually, a master's program, and it seemed like the marching happened and then not much else. And now Me Too happened and then the Kavanaugh thing happened, and it seems like they're happening happening now in more rapid succession. And as Cheryl was just saying, or one of us was saying mm -hmm. about more women running for office, mm -hmm. I mean, this is a very short period of time that you're talking about. But if it was in protest, the marching after Trump's mm -hmm. election, mm -hmm. the fact that women are running now in mm -hmm. the midterms, mm -hmm. that we they could greater in greater yeah. numbers, that's a huge thing yeah. that's happening that we couldn't have seen until the midterms. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And I think the Me Too movement is is heavily fueled by social media mm -hmm. as well. And so with the advent of social media that mm -hmm. allows it to continue to be fueled, mm -hmm. I think I think that it will continue to be in the forefront of people's mind. And that's why people are creating those leadership opportunities, whether it is they're running for politics or like Reese Witherspoon creating, you know, a production company to mm -hmm. support mm -hmm. women. In, in film, in representation, in media, I think as we see more media outlets start to get involved in this, it continues to perpetuate those ideas, mm -hmm. whether it's Me Too or some other form of mm -hmm. the Me Too mm -hmm. movement. I mm -hmm. think it will continue mm -hmm. to have an impact. 
You know, the thing that was heartbreaking after the Kavanaugh hearing, and I happened to be in D.C. for something during that time and so was driving a lot and listening a lot to the radio and hearing how many women were impacted by something. One of the NPR reporters was saying, yeah, I, I didn't think this happened to many people. And I talked to the women in my office and everyone had a story. Everyone, not a few of them, not some of them, every single one of them had a story. And how has that impacted the trajectory of their lives, yes. their careers? That we're talking about, that level seems foundational to really allowing women to stand up and contribute in the way they're able. And we're hearing them. Mm -hmm. Women are being heard. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. women have always said things, but they were often ignored. And they're leading. They're leading in ways that can make their voices heard. They're standing up for themselves mm -hmm. and they're standing up for other women. So they're banding together. Mm -hmm. And as Cheryl said, with social media, it doesn't have to be curated. It, no one else has to say, mm -hmm. oh, I think your story is important to tell. Women can just tell their own story, mm -hmm. tweet it and put it on Facebook mm -hmm. or pick your platform. Mm -hmm. And they have a message out there and podcasts and have mm -hmm. followings and things mm -hmm. that never at no other time in history than in this recent time. Have we seen people mm -hmm. able to have that kind of reach with their own voices? Mm -hmm. They can't be silenced. And I think there is also value in being curated. So yes. this NPR yes. reporter saying, everyone in my office, mm -hmm. let me tell you what I experienced. Yeah, that was powerful in a way that individual stories might be missed. But having someone who is highly respected and having a man be, again, an advocate mm -hmm. was you know, helpful. Maureen, one of the other things that I've been observing recently is despite years of research and even, mm -hmm. you know, Cheryl and I have talked about journal articles or books and things like that. Women mm -hmm. know that there's literature out there and we know that we should negotiate, for example, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. that. If there's sexual harassment, you know, you mm -hmm. need to say something. But so often I'm finding that women don't know how to put this into practice. Mm -hmm. When it happens to us, yes. how, do, how do you do something with that? How do you step forward knowing what you know about the research and the literature and then put it into action? And I don't know how to actualize some of mm -hmm. these things. Mm -hmm. And I will say that it's very challenging. So if it's challenging for some of the women who know um, what the literature says, what about mm -hmm. people who aren't quite sure how to name what has happened to mm -hmm. them? How are they going to come forward and how are they going to put a stop to it? And some of us have choices, right? Mm -hmm. we, we have financial stability. Yes. We're not working three jobs and we're exactly. afraid that if we say something to that nasty boss, that's right. we're not going to be able to feed our kids today. Exactly. Yeah. And that makes a difference. I mm -hmm. mean, if you have the privilege of choice, that makes a difference on how you voice mm -hmm. what's happened to you or mm -hmm. whether or not you do voice Whether it. or not you can. Exactly. Whether or not you feel safe enough. Because mm -hmm. it may be too dangerous for you to mm -hmm. do so. Mm -hmm. And you can't take that lead because you don't feel you have any power or authority in yourself or within the community. Mm -hmm. And to sometimes be able to you don't. Sometimes it's too big of a risk mm -hmm. when you're a single parent, mm -hmm. when you're living paycheck to paycheck and exactly. not barely making it that way. And that's why I think it's important for uh, researchers and authors and, and people who do podcasts mm -hmm. to speak for those who don't have voice. Mm -hmm. How can we be intersectional in our approaches and talking about LGBTQ issues? How can mm -hmm. we talk about people, Native Americans or Hispanics or Latinas or, mm -hmm. you know, in our 
culture in the United States. It's a very mm-hmm. dominant culture of 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 white and male having you know the authority and patriarchy mm-hmm. and things and and we're thinking how can we speak for others who don't have voice mm-hmm. and um, bring that message forward. Well, and it's interesting that so many men want to do the right thing and want to be allies, and that's true. And then there are a visible bunch that yeah do inappropriate things. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's an important point to raise, Maureen. Mm-hmm. I think whether we're talking about, uh, you know, our book or women's mm-hmm. leadership, it's it's not that we hate men, certainly. Mm-hmm. And, and I think men are our allies. Message. Absolutely, yeah. that yeah. we have to kind of really convey mm-hmm. that, that we want men as partners and men as advocates and allies. Mm-hmm. And, and we're all mm-hmm. in this together. It's not trying to trump one over another or one to kind of yeah. gain favor over another. It is how can we work together to achieve common mm-hmm. goals? Mm-hmm. Thank you for saying that, because I, I do want to make sure people don't hear this is man bashing. That's exactly right. Women no. trying to take over. No, no, no it's it's more about equity. It's more about representation. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's about. I mean, half of our population are women and mm-hmm. their voice is not being heard. Mm-hmm. Um, men are making decisions for women and not listening to mm-hmm. what women's needs might be. And that's I think that's what it is. It's just that getting that representation, mm-hmm. getting that parity. We want men to be able to listen and to hear mm-hmm. what we mm-hmm. have to say and be a part of it. When times where there are such big issues as a society, we don't need to be fighting with each other. Exactly. There are problems to solve. Absolutely. And they shouldn't be us against you. Mm-hmm. No, we should be working together. Men, women, different races, different classes, different you know, socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. working together towards making solutions happen. Why are women still having challenges moving into leadership roles and staying there? Again, the recent McKinsey study about women in leadership in 2018 and the stalling of progress and, in fact, key female CEOs leaving and being replaced by men. Why is some of this happening? Well, I think, Maureen, um, some of the things that Cheryl and I have been talking about is that it's it's embedded in our history. If Mm -hmm. we just look in the United States context, Mm -hmm. if we look back in our 250-year history, the United States adopted the laws of England and coverture was a part of that. And coverture were doctrines that said women lost legal rights. They couldn't own property when they married a man. They couldn't get divorced. They couldn't apply for a divorce. They couldn't get divorced. They couldn't keep their children. <laughs> so when you think of, and it's clearly they didn't have suffrage at the mm-hmm. beginning of this mm-hmm. country. So if you look at some of the initial doctrines that our country was founded mm-hmm. on and that women didn't have the right to vote until little less than 100 years ago. I mean, so 1920 is when they got the right to vote. These are not new issues. Women have been ignored, if that's the right way to say, by our own laws in basically displaced by our own laws and cultures Mm -hmm. of this country. So it's embedded and it's still happening today. So it's hard to kind of break away from some of the Mm -hmm. things that have been happening. I mean, universal education laws didn't happen until the early 20th century where it was mandated that all children had a K-12 education. And then women didn't have opportunity to pursue a higher education in great numbers, probably until the late 60s, early 70s, more women started entering higher ed. So if you look at some of the race ethnicity, depending on what race or ethnicity you were, you might have had an easier or more difficult time um, getting ahead. So I think if you look back at the history of the United States and understand how embedded some of the patriarchy is, every major organization is run by Men. So whether it's the military or the government or not for profits or profit driven businesses, religious Mm -hmm. organizations, education institutions are all run by men. 
and it's hard to beat an incumbent. So if you have always had these kind of structures in place, how can women then now enter into that place and, and, and get those leadership positions? It's hard to unseat someone that's already been there. And what's interesting is that as men have taken all these positions from the beginning, from the history, that's the vision or the um, image that people have of leaders. I think that's a really important point when we think of what does leaderly look like. Think yeah, leaders first, think male. Yes. Yeah, think a person in pants. Yes, um, exactly. Mm-hmm. Because that's what they've seen for so long. So mm-hmm. to change that perception of what it means to be a leader or what a leader looks like is difficult and takes time for people to understand mm-hmm. because it doesn't match what their expectations are. When a lot of our leaders, a lot of the policies that are being mm-hmm decided upon are decided upon by males because they're the majority in those leadership positions. Even though women represent half of our population, they are not viewed in that way. I think we also have to talk about the difference then again with Mm -hmm. with race and ethnicity too, that the Native American experience Mm -hmm. in this country Mm -hmm. is very different than a white person's experience in this country, than a black person's experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, patriarchy existed. We understand a white male patriarchy, but patriarchy also exists in a Black community. And so there are kind of layers upon layers upon layers of things that are happening, Mm -hmm. and it's hard to kind of break those all apart. I want to go back to the image we talk about with leadership, Mm. because we're taught that that's what works. It is so embedded in our culture Mm -hmm. that often people who are incredibly thoughtful will make a comment that leads me to believe it's a completely unconscious awareness that leadership is charismatic it's strong-willed, and yet our research will often say someone who is more thoughtful, deliberate, humility. When we talk about humility, women are taught more humility, and yet if they're not in front of people and taking equal credit, I'm coaching a general counsel for a large organization right now who happens to be female, and she said, I'm in these meetings, and the whole credit-taking thing mm-hmm. makes me, kind of makes my skin crawl, but that's the ethos. And so if I want to be recognized, I have to take credit. Yeah, I think there's some research out there that talks about claiming and granting of leadership, um, Daru and Ashford. And a lot of women will grant leadership, mm-hmm. but not many are claiming. So I think a lot of more women need to take on that approach of claiming leadership because they'll be able to grant leadership to a lot of different people. And so we see those differences as well. So another um, thing that we need to consider is the implicit bias that we have. We have certain biases about who should be a leader, right? Mm -hmm, What leadership mm -hmm. looks like. And we have these implicit biases that we're not necessarily always aware of, and that's Mm -hmm, why they're implicit. mm -hmm. So these implicit biases often put women at a disadvantage because they don't often have the characteristics or the um, traits that we deem a leader should have, even though there's a lot of research showing that leadership should take on um, more effective types of leadership, Mm -hmm. such as transformational style, uh, servant leadership are more effective, and that women tend to be better at those types of leadership styles. And often we do this to ourselves. Yes. It's not done to us. Yes. Because we have the same implicit bias. That's right. Both men and women mm -hmm, hold mm -hmm. implicit bias or implicit Mm -hmm. association. So are there solutions? What do we do about this? Well, some of it is being aware. Awareness, Mm -hmm. I think, is a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
being aware of our own implicit biases, being aware of the challenges that mm. individuals seek and being advocates mm. for mm -hmm. other women, advocates for men to be allies and advocates mm -hmm. for us as well. I think being upstanders too. I think that's a new term being coined. I think it was um, Samantha Power who coined it. It's um, instead of being a bystander, someone who stands near and watches what's mm -hmm. happening, mm -hmm. how can you stand up and speak truth to power or okay. speak truth to a situation that you see something not going well? You advocate for the right thing to do, the more ethical course of action. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a lot of power in words and having the right words to identify uh, situations mm -hmm. is important. And I think that's a good one. Upstander. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing we have to think about is a concentration on followers, not just leaders. Mm -hmm. Talking about the relationship between and among leaders and followers together. Mm -hmm. um, there's a book by the Horowitz's, A Leadership is Half the Story, where they talk about generative partnerships. You don't train a dance couple in, mm -hmm. separately. Like if you think about you know, Fred Astaire mm. and Ginger Rogers or World of Dance, a couple, a male and a female who are dancing together. You don't put them in separate rooms and train them separately mm -hmm. to dance and then bring them out all of a sudden and expect them to dance well together. But yet, that's exactly what we do with leaders. That's a we spend command. billions of dollars in the United States specifically mm -hmm. on training leaders. When if you look at some of the work and research that's out there, 80 to 90 percent mm -hmm. of the work that gets done in an organization is done by followers. 10 to 20 percent of the work then is done by leaders. But yet we focus all of our time and energy mm -hmm. on leaders. So how can we spend more time talking about that relationship, the partnership between leaders and followers and maybe develop them together instead of singularly or separately? You know, our, our leadership books, the, the book series that I've uh, co-written has a chapter after we talk about what's your leadership plan, development plan. We talk about who's your support team. And certainly we've got mentors and bosses and coaches. But one of the things I've talked about is if I'm changing as a leader, my followers have to change. Mm -hmm. So I think of someone who was working on the issue of micromanagement. Well, he couldn't change his micromanagement until his people stopped letting him micromanage, which meant that they didn't do the work fully because they knew he was going to change it anyway. Yeah, and yeah. I think if you, uh, there are certainly authors out of Robert Kelly is one of the people mm -hmm. who looks at followership and he looks at it as an X, Y axis. Mm -hmm. And you think about it's the level of active engagement and mm -hmm. the level of critical, independent or mm -hmm. dependent thinking. And followers are not cheap. I mean, certainly no, some can be passive, yeah. but we want them to be exemplary. Exactly. We certainly want followers to think independently and think critically and offer their leader insight mm -hmm. and ideas. And be actively engaged at the same time. I mean, especially if we consider that the followers are oftentimes a reflection of the leader. So you would think that there would be that connection there. And when we try to change things, do the followers shift? Oh, yes. So if we're trying to create a more inclusive culture. Are they are on also, board yeah. to do that? Mm -hmm. They need to be a part of mm -hmm. that movement as well. But I also think that sometimes leaders need to set the example, set the tone, set mm -hmm. the context. Mm -hmm. If the leader isn't willing to hear from the followers, the followers aren't going to say anything. So we need to invite people to join mm -hmm. in, not just buy in. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it is a fine dance between mm -hmm. the two. So it's bringing them together and making that decision together. So upstanding, leader, follower, dance together. Mm -hmm. Mentoring? Sponsorship. Women in, uh, sponsorship, mm -hmm. okay. So as people who are more senior, 
we sponsor, we role model. Mm-hmm. How about younger leaders who are look and and the other thing you talked about was the team of people who mentor, sponsor, yes. support, advise. Mm-hmm. As a young woman, what should I be thinking about? I think so many women have come into their existence kind of post Title Nine, oh, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they lived in, a, in an equality world. Okay, where, Title Nine for our international listeners. Oh, so policies that uh, mandate equality between mm-hmm. male and female in okay. athletics, for example. Okay. It's much broader mm-hmm. than that, but. And so uh, they think it's going to be equal. As soon as they are 22, they ah, get out of college. Mm-hmm. They assume. they We've seen the first black president in the United States. Mm-hmm. We have these rules and laws and policies in place mm-hmm. for equality. But then they get out and they realize, as Cheryl said earlier, it's not a linear path. There are mm-hmm. circuit, circuitous routes and it's a labyrinth. And then they're frustrated when they've been kind of not listened to or weren't invited to sit at the table to have a discussion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute. I thought I lived in equality, you know, an equal type of world, but they haven't and they're not. Mm-hmm. So it's a surprise for them. And a huge disappointment. Yes. Yes. Okay. So final couple of minutes as we wrap up, let's stay on the topic of what do we do? I'm a young woman. I'm entering the workplace or I've been here for a couple of years and I bump into a situation where I thought I would be treated with some sense of equality. And then someone asks me to get coffee. They give me their coat to hang up at a holiday party. Any number of things that we could take as huge slights. Yeah, I think it comes back to what we've talked about before. Some of it having to do with building that leadership team, you know, mm-hmm. of support. So mentors and sponsors who can help you, peers, and having that diverse feedback Mm -hmm. from those particular people and how to deal with those particular situations. Another one having to do with speaking up and using Mm -hmm. that voice Mm -hmm. and continuing to be able to voice the issues that are in front of them and working with others to come up with solutions. And I think amplifying, you know, and being an upstander and seeing Mm -hmm. something else that Mm -hmm. happened and saying, well, Cheryl doesn't need to make your coffee. I, Mm -hmm. I, I think she's highly capable. She doesn't have to make your coffee. Being able to speak up when you see something instead of just being a bystander. You know, and as you say that, I think of early in my life, I was asked to get someone coffee and my male colleague said, I'll go with you. So that early yeah. advocacy yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. meant the world to me that that he and I were peers. And why yeah. would you be treated differently? And that changed a tone of feeling supported that that I've carried with me my whole career. And I think that's huge, having male allies who will Mm -hmm. also see those particular inequalities and be a part of voicing those changes as well, alongside women. We need both men and women. Yeah. So as we wrap up, give us the name of your book again. Sure. Um, Women's Leadership Journeys, Stories, Research, and Novel Perspectives. Great. Thank you so much, both of you. It has been a wonderful conversation.